This is A New Angle, a show about cool people doing awesome things in and around Montana. I'm your host, Justin Angle. This show is supported by First Security Bank, Blackfoot Communications, and the University of Montana College of Business. Hey folks, welcome back and thanks for tuning in. Today is our July edition of Incentives and Instincts, a monthly series in which I speak with economist and friend Bryce Ward about some of the broader challenges facing our society. Today, we're going to try to make sense of what we're seeing in the labor market as we move out of the COVID-19 pandemic. Bryce, thanks for being here today. It's good to be here. So since this is our first Incentives and Instincts on Montana Public Radio, let's start with the proverbial Where did you grow up and what did your parents do? Uh, So I grew up in Grants Pass, Oregon. Mm -hmm. And my dad, mostly I guess I would describe him as a real estate developer, although he designed and built buildings and did other things along with it. And my mom moved around, uh, started off, she was a teacher. Then she worked at our church. And then my parents kind of helped co-found a musical theater company. And my mom kind of was the business end of that for a long time. And then she technically retired when I was in high school and then got basically pulled back into doing whatever else my dad was doing at the time. Uh, So yeah, that's the short version. And so listeners maybe know your voice and your background a little bit, but went to University of Oregon, studied economics, studied economics as a graduate student at Harvard. Um, worked in Portland as a consultant, and now in Montana, doing economic stuff. Uh, yeah, I mean, I have my own little consulting company, and I do whatever, answer questions yeah. related to the economy that people pay me to answer. You're a public oh. intellectual. Uh, I don't know about that. I don't know. <laughs> I'm public. We'll see you about the intellectual part. There but, we go. Uh, <laughs> well, we'll let listeners be the judge of that today. Uh, so the big question we're going to try to tackle is what the heck is going on in the labor market? What's signal? What's noise? It seems like anyone can find a s- statistic right now to support their worldview. Bryce, let's start with how are you approaching the effort to try to make sense of the data we're seeing? Part of what I'm trying to do is just to be patient. You mm-hmm. know, the number one message I tell people is we're coming out of an unprecedented event. Well, yeah. not unprecedented. Unprecedented in our lifetime event. Sure. And so we don't know how the economy reacts to this weird thing that we just went through. And as a result, you know, if you're looking kind of thinking of like a dashboard, there's lots of things that keep flashing red at us and kind of, you know, but then they pass. I mean, COVID is still with us. Yeah. But like as of a couple months ago, we still weren't mostly vaccinated. We're still in a transition. And so the reality is there's a lot of temporary shocks right now. And uh, the best thing is, if you can, is try and be patient because we're, we're out of equilibrium yeah. and we're groping our way back towards equilibrium. But until we get to something that's a little bit more stabilized and then we can say, oh, well, this is where the new equilibrium is compared to the old equilibrium. And we can kind of have a debate about, are we better off? Because that's really the question. I mean, you know, if you, we, the, the question that we frequently don't ask in these you know, we kind of have picked indicators that are supposed to be indicators of our, our whether or not we're better off, but it's not like the unemployment rate, yeah, like unemployment wages, rate, wages like all the, hours work, things like that. And so, you know, the question ultimately, long term, is yeah, are we going to be better off? And you know, just interesting, just as a total random factoid. Yesterday, Gallup Gallup has thousands of surveys in the field every single day, and one of the questions they ask is about life satisfaction. 
And, you know, so they have this daily index of how well we're thriving. And it reached a new record high last week. Including pre-pandemic. Pre-pandemic. This goes back to 2007. Hmm. Uh, You know, so kind of pre-Great Recession through the the collapse in the Great Recession to kind of the steady, you know, and it got to its previous high in September of 2017. And then it kind of, you know, stabilized, but it's still at a relative high. And then it collapsed again during the pandemic and has been very erratic over the course of 2020. But then, you know, basically once vaccines started going in December, it's been on a rocket ship. And now, yeah, you know, 60% of people were thriving. That's interesting. Um, I mean, we can get a little off topic trying to understand that. I mean, I will say personally, it is wonderful to do some quote unquote normal things again. You have me you have have an interview or a conversation in the studio with you, meet with students in my office, go to meetings around town, go to a restaurant. So those I can see like some of the normal day-to-day things just having a newfound appreciation for them might be kicking in for folks. Yeah, no, I mean, yeah, I'm in the same boat like, you know, uh going to a restaurant for the first couple times now, like I mean, it was thrilling. Yeah. But it's been kind of fun. Like, it's been, you know, almost college-ish, right? It's like, well, there's always something going on. So you mentioned, you know, going out to restaurants. That's one of the sectors we hear a lot about, restaurant owners saying it's just we can't find any workers. There's a shortage of, of work. And then, you know, policymakers will sort of lay blame at the extended unemployment benefits or, or, or whatever. Um, people on the left will say it's actually not that. It's that people want to be paid more for, for work and they want better jobs and workers are being more choosy Thinking about signal versus noise, setting talking points aside, what are you seeing in terms of the current state of these labor markets here in Montana? The first key piece of that story is that demand is strong. There's lots of people who want to hire workers, Mm -hmm. right? So according to Indeed, which is the kind of dominant job posting website, they've created this index of job postings. And as of last week, job postings in Montana were 57% above normal. Okay. So there's a lot of jobs that are open. That's a function of a couple of different things that are happening. Part of that is just demand. Demand is strong. Part of that is, well, when there's lots of job postings, lots of people quit. Mm-hmm. You know, so there's just more churn yep. happening in the labor market. And so, you know, that's part of the story on the demand side is, well, demand is high. And then we start linking back to supply. Well, when there's lots of job postings, people are like, oh, wait, there's a better job down the street. And I'm going to quit this job. And I'm going to go take that job. And we've seen record high. Or maybe I shouldn't accept my first offer. Uh, that's right. Keep looking or but, whatever. But just, you know, at least in April and May, nationally, we don't have this data for the state level yet, but nationally, we saw record high quits, right? So more people were quitting than normal, but it's right in line with what we expect based on the number of job openings. Okay, so let's just drill on that. So the fact that people are quitting doesn't necessarily say anything about people's work ethic. It just says that, hey, there's a lot more stuff out there to choose from. So it's natural that more people would be quitting their jobs. That's right. So when we see people quitting, we're not saying they're quitting work altogether, although there's some concern about that. But in terms of just how many people are quitting, you know, again, if you just look at the historical relationship between how many job postings there are and what share of the labor force quits, 
exactly in line okay. with what we expect. We just have a ton more job sure. openings. And that kind of feeds itself, at least for a little period, presumably, right? Where at least in April and May, uh, the day that we have, there was just lots of churn mm-hmm. in the labor market. That also then shows up in, well, maybe that we don't have as much employment increase as we expect because the employment numbers count how many people are employed. Yeah. But if a bunch of people quit and they haven't actually started at the job, you know, there's just some gaps. Yeah, it's like a velocity of, kind you know, of function. It, and this is, again, this is part of the reason why I'm just like, well, can we just wait? You know, let's, like, policymakers have to act now, obviously. So there's some need for urgency. But in terms of the rest of us who are just kind of following it as sport, let's just be patient and let's see where things are in the fall or in the winter and just see if, if you know, if, the number one concern I have in Montana's labor market is labor force participation remains depressed. Okay. Let's translate that. So, so not as many people who could work are choosing to work. Yeah. So labor force is officially defined as I am employed or I'm looking for work. Mm-hmm. Right. So those are those are the two people who are considered to be participants in the labor force. If I'm not looking for work, I'm out. And so we say, well, what share of people, typically over 15 or something, sometimes we'll define it as prime age or something, but you know, what share of people are saying that they're employed or that they're looking for work? Mm-hmm. And you know, if we look at that in Montana, pre-pandemic labor force participation in Montana for everybody was a little over 60%, okay. 61 you know, 61% of the population over 15 was either employed or looking for work. Mm-hmm. We've been stuck at 59 hmm. for months. You know, I mean, it's trended up a tiny little bit. So during pandemic and yeah, out of it, pandemic. You know, so it collapsed during the peak, you know, shutdown. Sure. But like it recovered by last summer to 59%. And it's and been stuck there for it, a year. You know, it went down a tiny bit during the COVID spike uh-huh. and then has come back a tiny bit since vaccines. But we're still, at, as of May, we're at 59.3. And are there theories to support that or to, to, to uh, explain that? This is the question, right. right? The question is, is this just people being slow to come back to the labor force? Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, part of this is household balance sheets are in really good shape. On average, people spent a lot less during particularly the early stages of COVID. Saved more, yep. And their income has been robust. Both if you were working, your wages have gone up a lot. And even if you weren't, we got stimulus payments and unemployment insurance. And collectively, nationally, you've got a little over a trillion dollars in both buckets. Yeah. A little over a trillion dollars in less consumption, and a little over a trillion dollars in increased income. And so, so part of this may be people just saying, I don't need to work. Yeah. You know, I'm going to take some time, you know, and whether that's a permanent, I don't need to work ever. And I'm going to, you know, move to a lower cost place or, you know, adjust my lifestyle, blah, blah, blah. That's the big question. We can't answer that question. Right. You know, and at the earliest, we'll start to see what effect the canceling of unemployment insurance has. Right. The only data that we have is on job search again from Indeed. And basically the finding is that it, promoted a little bit more job search when it was announced, but that quickly dissipated and effectively there's no difference in job search in- intensity, at least measured by job searches online in states that are ending unemployment insurance. But a relatively small share of people are unemployed and collecting unemployment insurance. Mm-hmm. And so it's hard for me to see how, it, I mean, it may have an effect, but, uh, you know, it's not 2% 
of Montana's labor force, particularly because if you're collecting unemployment insurance, you're in the labor force by definition. So that decline in labor force participation is probably unrelated to unemployment insurance. It may be related to the accumulation of the income from past unemployment insurance or from stimulus payments or, uh, you know, from other policies that will fade over time. Uh uh, And we'll see. But to the extent that it might just be a change in preferences, that's my biggest, if you say, well, what am I actually watching? I'm watching that labor force participation number because if 2% 2% of people have just decided, I don't want to work anymore. That will require a big adjustment in terms of how our economy operates and what kind of jobs are, and industries are even viable. Mm-hmm. So that's my main concern, you know, in terms of what am I looking at. And, you know, in May and April, we basically just hired our normal seasonal hires. We actually haven't been growing that economy. You know, there clearly seems to be a desire to increase the size of Montana's economy, but We haven't seen that yet. We haven't seen it. We're just, you know, seasonally adjusted employment actually was either, depending on, there's two measures. One fell, one went up, but both by trivial amounts. So essentially flat. So we're essentially hiring at the rate you expect to hire in May. In May. Right? Mm -hmm. Which is, we hire a lot in May because there's a lot of seasonal employment in Montana. But we just are, we're not seeing this push in terms of the increase in the size of our economy in recent months. And, you know, I think that's creating a lot of frustration reasonably. But if it's because people don't want to work permanently, then yeah, it's going to be hard. The other way that we typically try and solve that is why, well, we import people. But this is where the housing problem comes back in, which is if there's no place to put people or the rents are really high relative to the wages, you got another problem. And so, you know, this is where we're at. Yeah. And so outside of just whether or not somebody has a job, so the sort of the top line employment numbers, like is it, is it early enough to know anything about wage wages and hours worked and other metrics like that? So in Montana, they, both of those are consistent with a tight labor market. Okay. Um, so Meaning that wages are on the rise and people are working more hours? People are working more hours uh, and wages are way up. Okay. Um, and our data are a little bit wonky, right? And that the monthly data that we get are average wages amongst those employed, which means that they're subject to what we call composition effects, which is if your employment is down, but employment is disproportionately down in low wage occupations, Mm, then you get this mechanical increase in the average hourly wage because it's the low wage jobs that are missing. But we've got through Q1 of 2021, just total amount paid in wages. And that's 7% up over pre-pandemic, right? And that's not accounting. That's just amount of money that was paid to workers and employment was still down. So, Mm -hmm. you know, the average wage effectively is probably actually higher than 7% because that's just, you know, we're just saying, look, here's how much money was paid, but that went to fewer workers. Right. Uh, So wages are definitely up. Um, It's also part of the story in the housing market, I think. Yeah, in Montana, it's, yeah, I think it's a little slightly more than 7% quarter, you know, in terms of the... Q1 2021 relative to Q1 uh, 2020, which is mostly pre-pandemic. Yeah, and that's one thing that folks don't necessarily think about when they think of inflation. I mean, wage inflation is a form of inflation, and it's maybe in many ways the leading form of inflation in terms of how inflation flows through the economy. You hear that word bantered around a lot. Uh, You know, what? probably too early to tell what what the effects are going to be, but it seems like there are certainly inflationary forces in the economy at the moment. Inflation is definitely up as measured and by any measure you 
generally want to pick. Now, the big question is, is how much of this is just, again, these weird transitory shocks, right? right? right. So and supply chain disruption and other weirdness in the, in the, uh, in the market. That's right. And, we, you know, we've seen numerous of these, right? Mm-hmm. Lumber was the big thing. You know, it was going crazy in kind of March, April. It peaks and now is back almost to where it was last August. Yeah. Which was still high, but like, you know. Not, not five times. Not what it yeah. was in May or whenever it peaked. You know, right now we have a lot of inflation is actually in automobiles. Yeah. Um, which is a supply disruption in chips. So, you know, there's some weird stuff there. But to the extent that wages really are rising, you expect as we kind of grope towards an equilibrium, that will result in higher prices because we don't know who's ultimately going to pay for all these changes. And sure. maybe some of this will come out of owner's shares, but they're going to try and get their share and they'll try and get it through raising prices if they can. So they'll raise prices so that they can pay the higher wages that they need to pay to attract the workers. Mm-hmm. We'll be back to our conversation with economist Bryce Ward after this short break. A New Angle is supported by First Security Bank, Blackfoot Communications, and UM's College of Business. Access to capital, broadband, and education are three ingredients any community needs for success. This is John Twiggs with Montana PBS, and you're listening to A New Angle. Welcome back to A New Angle. I'm here with economist Bryce Ward for our monthly Incentives and Instincts series. This month, we're trying to make sense of the labor markets as we emerge from COVID. And so this isn't necessarily all bad news. Like inflation isn't necessarily bad. In many ways, we're sort of designed to, I don't know if design is quite the right word, but we're normalized to operate with a certain amount of inflation in, in the system. Yeah, I mean, the Fed targets 2% inflation, exactly. right? There's an intentional effort, and we've been lagging that for most of the past decade. Uh, so to go slightly above it for some amount of time is a shock to the system. The question is, is who are the winners and losers out of this? And are we happy with that set of winners and losers? And that's true for inflation. That's true for higher wages. Is it, you know, is it better to have workers have more bargaining power? Obviously, the workers, I'm sure they're probably okay with it as long as their wage increases are in excess of inflation. Yeah, this this broader question of what is the right balance in an economy? Do you want an economy where it's a seller's market or a buyer's market in terms of labor? Do you want workers to have choice over, you know, that not only what job they take in the terms of that job or do you want the seller or the 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 employers to have the power? We're sort of dancing around this concept of equilibrium. You know, where do you kind of land on that? I mean, I know you're interested in power in many ways. How do you kind of resolve sort of some of this economic theory with some of your, your interest in power? These are trade-offs, right? These, you know, and ultimately what we want to land on is there's always going to be trade-offs. And this is one of the things that economists always scream about that normal political discussions try and avoid. Sure. There's always <laughs> going to be some trade-off. And what we're trying to reach is, well, what's the best aggregate, however we want to measure aggregate welfare? You know, how do we trade off your gain versus my loss? Right. A lot of what we've struggled with most, of, basically over my whole life, is workers haven't had much power. We've basically kept kind of taking their power and basically saying, you know, 
accept lower wages. An interesting study came out just a couple of months ago, which actually did this using social security data, which looked at lifetime individual earnings across different cohorts. Mm. And, you know, so you could see that for the proverbial lower educated male, earnings peaked a long time ago and they've been declining, right? right? Adjusted for inflation. You know, your, your lifetime earnings, so adding up across all of these years, okay. you know, through, through, I think they have data through your 50s. If you reach 25 in the early 80s, that was as good as it got Interesting. And for men. And yeah. it's been on a downward trajectory since. Now, women have... And this is just wages. This isn't, the, you know, whether or not you invested in the market effects yeah, this is with those savings and yeah, all that. Yeah, this is your, you know, what social, just what social security sees as your wages, okay. right? So, which is, you know, what gets reported to them. But like, you know, but it's adding it up over a long period of time. And, you know, we've definitely seen a weakening in terms of the expected lifetime earnings of a group of people in the United States. And I think that's a problem. And look, I think a lot of what's driving this is probably temporary, right? Like, you know, again, I I expect that eventually people will run out of savings and kind of be like, oh, wait, I want to buy stuff and yeah, I probably have to go back to done. work. So I, I kind of expect that maybe there'll be some marginal changes, but I kind of think long run, we'll get back to something that resembled where we were. And so mm-hmm. the question comes back to more core policy about, well, what are we doing to try and give workers a little bit more Power and you know, interestingly, President Biden has uh, just this week has announced that he's going to engage in a bunch of things that things like reducing um, non-compete clauses, yeah. which are I, I when I learned about them because I testify about things in courts and occasionally there's disputes related to non-competes and things like that, and you know, every fiber of my kind of core microeconomics brain just kind of reacts against a non-compete clause, except for in very exceptional circumstances. Sure. And when they're being applied to people at sandwich shops and hair salons, I'm, I just like, no, right? Like, yeah, if you're like non-compete for somebody who's like, you know, in, integral to the intellectual property of the Right, firm, they have, I mean, uh, fine. The, the basic theory has some uh, usefulness. You know, and my, you know, another one that he's going to work on, or at least he's directing the FTC to work on is occupation licensing, which was what my undergraduate thesis was about, mm-hmm. and, you know, occupational licensing is a non-tariff barrier to trade. Basically, you know, if you get recognized as a license in, you know, a particular state, uh, your ability to move to a different state and have that license recognized is very limited. Yeah. And as a kid from Oregon, what my undergraduate thesis was about was basically looking at cities like Portland. And it's like, well, I'm licensed in Washington. Right. There's this giant city across the river, but I can't go down there to do business unless I go through some additional onerous process. Right. And so, you know, what does that do to competition, wages, prices? Yeah. So we have these policies that reduce choice and flexibility for workers. It just makes it harder for you to do what you want to do. And, um, you know, so, you know, these are the... And easier for employers not to compete for your services. That's right. And then, you know, that's the last piece of, of the what Biden has laid out in his executive order or allegedly has laid out. I don't think it's actually public yet, which mm-hmm. has been reported on, is monopsony power, which is the, you know, we know that in markets where there are fewer employers for your particular services, your wages are likely to be lower. And so it's basically advocating something which has been prevalent in economics for a while now but hasn't been tested in court yet, right? So when you do an antitrust case in court, it's all about the consumer, right? Is consumer welfare harmed by this monopolist? Right. You know, you want, you want a merger, whatever, are you going to raise prices by enough that consumers are harmed? And what 
at least some economists have been advocating for, and what this is kind of the tip of the iceberg about, but it will ultimately probably need to go through Congress, is to say that the tests about when we're you know evaluating mergers or you know in, you know certainly working under antitrust policy, you know the laws that we have, we should be concerned about workers, right? So to what extent is this merger going to depress wages? Sure. So all of these things are they're marginal, but they're all part of the same thing, which is right now what we're seeing is you know somewhat on steroids is okay well here's what a market looks like when employers are in the more weaker position mm-hmm. and there's probably some good that comes with that there's probably some bad like the share of workers who don't even know what their schedule is going to be yeah right yeah. you know i mean just things like this that are just kind of they really do put people in an awful situation in terms of you know how much they can even enjoy their lives and well i don't i don't think we want to live in a society that's defined by precarity mm-hmm. right that needs a bunch of people to be in a very precarious situation for the economy to operate yeah right and so i would love to see yeah let's move off the needle again i'm not saying that what we exist in currently is also ideal because it could also create inflation which erodes the benefits of wage gains you know what we're looking for is are people better off, yeah. both in aggregate, but also distributionally? There has to be some amount of, you know, not just a full utilitarian welfare function, which is, look, if a rich person got a, a whole lot better off and a bunch of poor people got slightly worse off, we're better. It has to be a little bit of a, well, we also care about what the minimum is doing, you know, where, you know, some some target person who we think of as an acceptable citizen in terms of how they're behaving and what they're doing and all their choices they shouldn't be in precarity, yeah. right? And ideally, again, n- not through direct redistribution, but through redistribution of power in the market, right? Because then it feels more natural. Mm-hmm. It feels more acceptable. It's not a handout. It's not the government. It's just the government intervening in the rules and making it so yeah, that- setting the guardrails, you know, right? You know, so that it's a little bit more likely that I get to land on boardwalk early in the game and can buy it or whatever it is. It's just a change in the in the odds yeah. of the casino. Right. We're trying to shift the, the odds of the casino so that it's not so stacked in favor of the house. Mm-hmm. And there's things that casinos do all the time that change those oh, odds. Yeah. And what we're saying, you know, what I at least am saying is, you know, to the extent that there's things that we can do at a policy level that can change those odds uh, in ways that slightly, in, you know, can remove the amount of precarity and, you know, reduce the number of people who are working jobs and working extra jobs that are miserable, they don't like them, and they're paying terrible. And, you know, it's great driving around and seeing signs saying, work here, we're going to pay you $14 an hour. Like, that's a lot closer to what at least the people who try to calculate this stuff calculate as a wage that you can live on. Mm -hmm. That by itself is a good thing, but our problem is that we evaluate things narrowly. So we hit on some of the meta themes that, that we're looking at with the stress on patience. Between now and our next episode, a month from now, what do you kind of, what is the key thing that you're looking for? Like what, 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 what piece of information would add? Okay, so we saw in nationally, the June's job report was 850,000 increase in employment. I want to see, did that spill into Montana? Mm-hmm. The other thing that we'll learn a little bit about by the next month, but probably not fully until August is what is the effect of the unemployment insurance canceling? They're gone in Montana, right? As yep. of right now, you know, yep. they're, you know, it was the 29th pandemic, of June, poo is gone, you know, the extra $300 gone, you know, there's all gone. So, you know, when we get the unemployment claims data, it will show a big decline mechanically. But what we want to see is, okay, well, is that, was that holding back things? Or if it's not, then, 
okay, then now what? Well, time will tell. Bryce. Time, time will tell. Be patient. Thanks for coming in. Good to see you, and we'll see you next month. All right. Thanks, Justin. Thanks for listening to A New Angle. We really appreciate it. And we're coming to you from Studio 49, a generous gift from University of Montana alums Michelle and Lauren Hansen. A New Angle is presented by First Security Bank, Blackfoot Communications, and the University of Montana College of Business. With additional support from Consolidated Electrical Distributors, Drum Coffee, and Montana Public Radio. A.J. Williams is our producer, BTO, Jeff Amet, and John Wicks made our music. Editing by Nick Mott. And Jeff Meese is our master of all things sound. Thanks a lot, and see you next time.